Welcome back to Fan Fiction is Good. Actually, it's me, Evan, the one who's always here. This episode, I'm joined by actual professional writer and editor, George Hickman. I persuaded him to come talk to me about quite a few things, actually, including asexual representation in fiction, how historical fiction fits into the cultural paradigm of original versus transformative works, and whether or not fan fiction makes you a bad writer. Spoilers, we both think it doesn't. George is an editor for Barrel House magazine, and he has recently published an essay called Found in Situ about an archaeological excavation in Greece and some very personal experiences surrounding it. I've put a link to that in the show notes. You can also follow George on Twitter at George L. Hickman. It's spelled exactly the way you'd expect, no underscores, no spaces, just at George L. Hickman, but I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. All right, let's do a podcast. record and for listeners share your name or, or whatever you prefer to be called if you have some kind of alias or screen name or secret identity uh share your name or what you prefer to be called and your pronouns please sure um, my name is george hickman and my pronouns are he his him thank you for coming on the podcast i'm excited to talk to you uh can you talk a little bit about uh your career in fiction, basically. I know you've got some overlap with academia, and I know that you are actively a writer and an editor, so I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess, like, my background is um, I have a, a master's in uh, creative writing fiction, um, but more recently than that, um, I'm sort of, like, involved in the literary sphere, like you said, in two ways. Um, as a writer and as an editor. Um, so as an editor, I'm an assistant editor in fiction for the magazine called Barrel House. Um, they're kind of based in like DC and Philly area. Um, and then as a writer, I primarily write um, fiction. I don't know, queer fiction, I guess. Um, I usually say like queer fiction about place. Um, and so I'm, you know, involved in doing my own like original creative work, but I also um, do use like the world of fandom as like a good place to like gain skill in writing. Um, so I feel like, you know, I'm a little bit in, in both worlds, I guess. Yeah, uh, you're really interested in historical fiction specifically, right? Yeah, yeah, I am. So I people people on the Internet are going to be like, you're really stretching, Evan, you're really stretching this. <laughs> but um as much as anything can be categorized, and I have doubts about categorization being useful in a lot of ways, but as much as anything can be categorized, I would posit, hot take, hot take, <laughs> that um, historical fiction is categorically very similar to fan fiction. Yeah. At least it has many of the same transformative elements 
you're working in a framework that already exists that you did not create, something that is from your perspective immutable, and you are using it to explore something or express something, uh, fill in gaps, something like that. Do you think that is a dumb take? No. I'm curious your opinion. <laughs> no, I don't think it is at all. And I think like historical fiction does have such a different framework um, than I would say like writing something that's not historical, just in terms of the, um, like people often use this word uh, world building and like science fiction and fantasy, but I think it's true in historical fiction too, like kind of determining um I guess using what other authors have described about the time period and kind of factoring like, okay, this world has sort of already been built for me, but where am I finding like my own voice? How am I kind of, in my case, like queering history and talking about the stories that maybe haven't been preserved or haven't been written down and, and kept over time? Um, so I think that there is a, like a similarity there. Um, were you thinking like in a, in a different way than world building, like how you were saying sort of using it as like a base for, you know, you have like this historical base and then you're as the writer adding your own content onto that? Yeah, well, I think uh, in relation to what you described queering history, uh, I don't. I don't mean at all to posit that there were not queer people throughout history, because obviously there were, right. and we have evidence that there was. But there's a lot that's not recorded about the queer people in history. So you are filling gaps and you are using that to explore something about the concept of identity. Yeah, definitely identity. Yeah, I think like for me personally, and this wouldn't be like historical fiction at large because everyone has different motivations for why they are interested in writing about history. But for me, it's definitely looking at the stories that that didn't get written down. And especially, I think, as a trans person, a lot of times, like, people sort of use this argument against, like, a trans identity saying, like, oh, well, this is like a new fad or something. And, like, part of my reason for wanting to write about historical trans characters is to say, you know, we've been around since 2000 BC. Like, we, we have always been here. We just maybe haven't been in the documents that you know, some people have read about ancient times and things like that, but kind of owning that space in terms of identity has been really important for me. So I, the reason that I asked you to be on the podcast is because I was following your, like what you were reading on Goodreads, Goodreads, the, the only, well, God, I shouldn't say the only unproblematic social <laughs> network, because I'm sure that... that... <laughs> I'm sure that I'm sure that Goodreads pretty soon is going to figure out a way to be problematic, but <laughs> the perhaps the social media with the least potential for toxicity, Goodreads. And uh, I I noticed that we had a lot of like kind of similar interests, but I specifically noticed that you had recently read a book about asexual representation in media, and this is something that in traditional media and in fan media is really lacking generally speaking but as a as someone who is not asexual like i definitely don't have much insight into that so like tell me about this book tell me what the deal is and like tell tell me tell me your take your hot take on like asexual representation in fiction be it original fiction or fan created fiction mm, okay 
So I guess to start with the book itself, um, it's a wonderful book. Um, let me get the full title here. Um, so the book is Ace, and then the subtitle is What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex. And it's written by Angela Chen. And I just think it's such a fantastic book. Um, what she does is she has like a lot of her own experience um, with asexuality in the book, but interwoven with that, is about 40 other perspectives from such a variety of backgrounds. And she even, you know, establishes in the beginning of the book that this book can in no way capture like all of the, you know, understandings of, of asexuality, but it does a very good job, I think, at capturing um, a wide variety. And so they do actually talk about um, asexuality in terms of representation in media um, and how a lot of times asexuality may be represented like there's an episode um, of House where there's like a character that sort of um, is almost like diagnosed with like asexuality and so like a lot of the representations we've seen have been like this very medical like implication of like there's something wrong with this person if they are not experiencing sexual attraction um, and so part of the book unpacks this representation um, which tends to fall in that category of displaying asexuality as like a medical thing. Um, and so I would say that, you know, I before reading this, I hadn't really sat down and thought about, um, you know, asexual representation or have I ever, you know, seen myself represented in, in media. And when I read, um, you know, obviously she's researched a ton to put this book together and when I read what she came up with of here's the representation we have so far, I was like, wow, that's pretty bleak. Like there's not uh, <laughs> there's not too much uh, diversity of perspective going on there at all. Um, so that's kind of, I guess, like the the gist of the um, the book is kind of just trying to uncover also the intersectionality of asexuality and talking about, you know, in terms of gender um, intersection, intersecting with asexuality. How does that define your experience? How does race and asexuality define your experience and disability and asexuality? Um, so it's a fantastic book. Um, but uh, in terms of the second part of your question, like uh, asexuality and fan fiction, I was curious to talk to you about um, fan fiction specifically because I myself would not say that I'm like an avid reader of fan fiction. I've certainly read some for mm -hmm. the, you know, the things that I'm interested in, but I don't feel that I have a very good like finger on the pulse of like what's going on in fan fiction. So I was curious from from your perspective, like, do you see like how you said um, asexuality seems to be underrepresented there? Um, is that because you're seeing like a lot of fan fiction has to do with like sexuality specifically? So a thing that I have learned in recent years is that not as much fan fiction is sexual is as sexual as I would have thought mm. when I was a teenager because I was very horny and <laughs> I was looking for horny fan fiction all the time as a teenager. Um, but I've kind of come to like reckon with the larger scope of fan fiction in more, more recent years. Now that first of all, I have more mainstream fiction with more queer representation in it. So I don't need to turn to fan fiction as much for, representation of queer people mm. so there's that and then also i'm just getting like a more holistic look at fan fiction because of better 
categorization and aggregation sites like Archive of Our Own that have like better tagging systems and better organization systems. So I think it is getting better. It's possible that there was always some asexual representation in fan fiction historically, but it certainly was not in your average person's perception of fan fiction. Mm. There is a kind of, I don't want to call it a movement exactly, but in fan communities, people are gradually becoming more aware of the sort of less visible queer identities and are making a conscious effort to represent them positively. So there's certainly more asexual representation in fan fiction than there once was, uh, even in romantic fan fiction oh, and cool. even in sometimes sexual fan fiction in ways that like kind of explore what's going on with like sex aversion maybe or like sex indifference and things like that so it's definitely the landscape is changing i still don't think uh it's the paradise of representation that one mm. might hope and that's true of i think any kind of representation in fan fiction there's always like there's always a contingent of people that will represent an identity for purely fetishistic reasons so there's that mm. which makes fan fiction not inherently ideal as like a mainstream media alternative there's also people who maybe are making good faith attempts to represent marginalized identities and not doing all the research they could have done. Uh, but I don't want to pan fanfiction writers for that because fanfiction is an exploratory space from my perspective. It's, it's a place where you can experiment and play with ideas. And as with any art form, the audience response to that is part of it. So I think there is something to be said for the ability to create that kind of uh, that kind of world, and then the ability to share it somewhere and have people respond to it. So I think even if it's not ideal, it's good that people are playing with those ideas. Yeah, and I think I think that actually is like I would say a benefit of fan fiction is like the control that the audience has. So like when you have these representations let's say of any identity but let's say asexuality that feel like they're written by someone who does not identify that way like there are plenty of people who you know have written an asexual perspective that identify as maybe allosexual um that do it well and you know that i reading it would have like no qualms with what they wrote and i you know as an audience would say you know i like this or like i'm gonna retweet this somewhere or what have you and I think like that really like the audience power in fan fiction, I think kind of is a way that we can give accolades to people who are doing it right. Um, and people who, you know, are writing within their own identity as well to kind of be able to share that and to see um, as a, a person who's like just a reader, for example, to see like, you know, I have the power to share this and to like this and do whatever to help the author get noticed. Whereas a lot of times in in like literature or you know like publishing and things like this you have all these people at the top and it's probably not a very diverse room at, at the top of these like top five publishing houses and 
there may not be an asexual person there that can say whether or not this book is well written from an asexual perspective. And so I think that's like a great thing about fan fiction is that you have this ability for like the people to kind of say like, this is a good one, like this represents us. So I do think that's interesting. There's also less pressure in that environment because even if someone screws up and does does a bad representation, they just do a heckin' bad job, <laughs> um, it's not as though uh, a ton of money was dumped into that project and now the, the public at large is consuming that project and now it mm. has the potential to harm people's understanding of what that identity means. So... It's a much uh, more insular space, and it's also a space like less affected by capitalism, certainly. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not to say it's 0% affected by capitalism, because I guess those hosting sites still need money. Yeah, that's... Uh, you would know better than I would, because I don't work in publishing in any capacity at all. But I do feel like the, uh, the kind of ever-present specter of capitalism... Is, is pressing <laughs> pressing its boot down on uh, less common perspectives. Yeah, and, and I feel like it is getting better. You know, like I do feel like I've seen even in the small time that I've been writing, I've seen like the publishing world starting to change in this way. But of course, there are times when they don't get it right, and like not to say that you know, uh, like you said, not to say that like fan fiction is free of this like capitalistic influence but like sometimes it does feel nice just to see like hey this story just got like a ton of likes that's the people speaking and saying that they that, that it's good and i do have direct democracy <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah but i think i want to go back to your other question too about um like asexual representation um because i'm curious your thoughts on this as well um but i was trying to think about I guess, like, the question of, like, what is asexual representation um, is something that I guess I've been thinking about. Um, as a writer, I the main thing that I'm working on right now is a novel, and the protagonist is asexual. And so it's been a question that's been on my mind for a while, um, because I suppose there are people who could say, you know, to have the absence of sexuality or, or sex specifically to have like the absence of sex in a book like is that asexual representation or sort of going mm. in the aromantic direction saying like is the absence of a romance plot an aromantic book and i personally think i feel like that's not enough like i wouldn't yeah. call a book like good asexual representation because there are no sex scenes you know what i mean um so i guess like my sort of feeling about it is and, and this is like very personal, but for like the project that I'm working on, I want to see my asexual character in the dating world and put in these situations where, um, you know, if someone like confesses that they're interested in them sexually, seeing that asexual protagonist respond with um, no, like, I love you romantically, and maybe not using those words because it is a historical piece. You know, they don't have the the terms that we use today, um, but kind of expressing like, I do feel this romantic love for you, but I'm conflicted because I, it doesn't include the sexual attraction. Um, and so for me, I think like asexual representation really does need to include a character sort of talking about 
um, their asexuality, even if it's not in a very direct way. Like, I don't think I would like to read something that the character just says, well, I'm asexual, and here's the definition of that. Like, I don't think that's very compelling, you know, <laughs> fiction, but, like... I have uh, read <laughs> just a handful of books with, like, trans characters in them, mm-hmm. and you can tell that they're written by cis authors, because that's exactly <laughs> how it how it goes down. They're like, yes, I am a... And I have I transitioned on this date, and this was the order right. in which I had my surgeries, because that's the only way to be a trans person. Yeah, mm-hmm. so. I can't tell you how many workshops I've been in writing like a trans story where the primarily cis people in the workshop are like, "Well, are you going to include whether or not this person has had surgery?" And I'm like, "No, I'm just Irrelevant so tired next. of getting those questions." Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but it's true. Like, I think that is a pretty good defining marker of, like, if something gets a little too informational, then it almost feels like the author is trying to educate themselves. Whereas I think if if you're reading something and, um, I mean, I think this is also, like, it can also be skill level sometimes. Like, someone may be learning how to write and they, they know they want to include this and it may just come off that way. But I think it is important to to figure out, like, how do those things get said? Like, there's not really many times in my life where I've said, like, I am asexual. Here is what that means. Like, the, I don't talk this way, you know, when, mm-hmm. when people yeah. ask me about it. It usually comes up. Nobody does exposition in real life. That's just not a thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't feel natural. But, like, thinking about, like, I guess for writers as well, kind of thinking about, with your own identity like how does this come up naturally in conversation like when are the times that you're aware that you're asexual like for me it would be um this came up recently with my friends where like uh you know when you see something that is maybe like aesthetically pleasing and you Mm. might make that sound that's like kind of a sexual sound where you're like "Mm, i love that person's hair (laughs) you know (laughs) and like a lot of times like i felt like people were assuming that making that Mm, sound meant that I was like sexually interested in that person and so like I had to sort of correct them and say no I'm asexual that's I usually am trying to express that I'm aesthetically attracted to this um but yeah I don't know um what what you think about that like in terms of how these things like organically come up is that something that you feel like um you see as like good representation yeah well to go back to what you were saying about like including representation of a specific identity in in literature and specifically the absence of sexuality not being the same as asexuality all of human life is built around interpersonal interactions right and for most people sexuality is part of that regardless of what your sexuality is and for most people uh romance is a part of that to some extent so it's it would be fairly conspicuous to never have those conversations in a normal mm. social interaction. So just to not bring it up ever is really avoiding the subject more than it is exploring it, I think. So I, I agree with you in that regard. Like just having a, a story in which none of the characters ever have sexual conversations or interactions with anyone that seems like either an accident 
or like a deliberate avoidance of the topic altogether. Like you said, these things come up in human interaction naturally. So you would really need to kind of be working hard or be tone deaf to, to not address those at all in any context. Yeah, like I think that it I think it can be done. Like I've definitely read books that those are not like romance or sex are not um like driving factors of plot. I know like I've I've read plenty of books that maybe focus on themes of like justice or um you know, I I don't know, like concepts of like free will versus fate or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like they are out there, but I do agree that if if this is something that you're trying to do in terms of representation of like asexual for asexual characters or what have you i think avoiding it completely i just wouldn't consider it i wouldn't call that book like good asexual representation if it's just like lack of sex scenes but good, but i good do representation think there can be books ad- about it <laughs> yeah good representation of the abstract concept of justice i guess good, good <laughs> right good <job>. true <laughs> uh so we met through LARP, so mm-hmm. I have inferred that you're in some fandoms. You like some <laughs> fanish stuff. Uh, yes. <laughs> can you talk a little bit about the fandoms you're in and like what drew you to them and what sort of participation you have in them? Yeah, um, I really have like one big one, I would say, which is um, Red Dead Redemption 2. Have you played that game? Oh, no, but I'm familiar with it. Oh, okay. It's, um, I could ramble about it forever, so I'll try to You can, you can my... ramble about it as long as you want. This, we can do whatever we want. This is my podcast, and I make That's rules. true. <laughs> That's true. Okay, I'll ramble then. Um, I guess what I love about that game, and this probably will contain some level of spoilers, not of actual things that happen, but more like the themes that are in the game. This game has um, been out that okay? a while. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This, this game has been out like years. It's fine. <laughs> it has, yeah. Um, I think for me, like, I had never enjoyed Westerns before playing this game. I started playing it because a friend recommended it to me and I, like, trust their taste. And I was like, sure, you know. Um, and it really, really transformed, like, what I as a historical fiction writer think of the West. It was just something that I always dismissed because you see these like Hollywood representations of like this toxic masculinity kind of cowboy. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that's not a world where I belong. Like, I'm just not going to write anything about that or read anything about that ever. Um, And then I played Red Dead Redemption 2. And I feel like for me, it certainly uh, challenged like the toxic masculinity stereotype of the cowboy. It um, brought in issues of race. It brought in, um, I would say, very slightly issues of sexuality. They're kind of like there if you look for them, but not really um, overly present in the game. Um, it has like the a theme of like um, a character that's kind of dealing with chronic illness, and um, people have really applauded how the game handled that, um, which is not something that I think gets enough like like representation in westerns um for sure um so it it was just something that kind of invited me in and said hey you like queer you know asexual trans person like you can be in a western too you know and i i just felt like i felt kind of like foolish for kind of writing off this section of history that's very important to like 
the American identity and just saying like, I don't belong there. Um, and I, I think like since then I've read so much about um, the West and about how there were so many like transgender cowboys, how women really like ran the Western civilizations that were out there. Um, and the game was like the portal for, for that. Um, so I think like I've, I have written Red Dead fan fiction and I've done it because I want to see like more of that. Um, there, there were some th themes that I feel like they didn't explore enough, like sexuality and gender, um, that I wanted to say, hey, like these themes belong in there too. Um, and it was very fun, <laughs> like first of all, to write those things in this world that I admire so much and that I think is beautifully written. Um, it was just fun to like live in that world for a little while. Um, and I think it was also very like affirming to kind of like write not not characters that are like me per se, but to write characters that I didn't see in the game and give them like space, you know, in that world. You said you felt foolish for not uh, like acknowledging how interesting this period of history was. I don't think that's your fault. I think there's a large <laughs> contingent of people who are crafting the quote-unquote American identity in a way that would deliberately exclude people like us, basically. Yeah. So I don't think I don't think that was your fault. I think that was media's fault, and I think that was <laughs> probably toxic masculinity's fault, and also just a certain contingent of middle America prefers that cowboys all be white and straight and real manly and treat women right. like garbage, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely think that that was certainly at play. I think, like, I, you're right, like, I, I don't feel foolish about it per se, more so that I was like, wow, I never even gave this a chance. Like, I never even, like, looked under the rug of these Hollywood movies to see what's the actual history here. But, like, the game did that for me. And I think, like, the community of people, I guess, like, what I kind of use fandom for sometimes is kind of, I think everyone uses it to find like people that they have something in common with. But mm -hmm. I think for a lot of people, it's so much more than that. Like it's, oh, you share these values. Like I know that if someone has played through the entirety of that game, they've witnessed this kind of deconstruction of tox toxic masculinity. And that's something that they, they value and they want to see more games like that. And so like it has been nice sort of like connecting and reading other people's things um, sort of in like the Red Dead sphere and seeing like oh in a way like these are my people these are people that understand these issues and and feel like it's important to write stories like this yeah I definitely agree I definitely have found more people with values comparable to my own in fandom communities than in the world at large uh, which is not to say that like any fandom is a monolith there's certainly people who will play some games and not internalize the themes in any way. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, the people who made the straight Dorian mod for Dragon Age Inquisition, like, guys, <laughs> that character's whole story is just about being gay and about dealing with that with his family. Like, the, the whole side quest doesn't even make sense if you put the straight Dorian mod in there. But, mm. um, yeah, by and large, I think that it is... Uh, difficult to consume media and not internalize some of what it's trying to tell you. So it, it is definitely a way that people kind of come together around ideas.
Yeah, and you're right. Like, there's always going to be some bad apples or, like, people who, you know, did that just kind of go over your head, The whole those whole themes? But I do think it, it is, like, what you said. It's, like, I have, like, a greater chance of, like, finding a, like, a connection with someone that we value these same things, like, in, in this, like, fandom world than the world at large. That's for sure. Uh, any other fandoms? Anything you absorbed as a child? I'm really interested in, like, what catalyzed people's interest in fandom so probably my first was harry potter and then my second was yu yu Hakusho. and harry potter is very problematic now and uh (laughs) somehow yu yu Hakusho isn't well done anime (laughs) um i i to be fair i haven't looked up the guy who wrote Yu Yu Hakusho, so maybe he's an asshole. I don't know. Maybe I maybe I'm better off not knowing. But yeah, like as as a kid, those were the two things that kind of catalyzed me into the larger fan community. Did you have anything like that? I did, um, and I feel like I've been in such a nostalgic mood that I've actually rewatched it a little bit lately. Um, I don't know if you ever watched Lost when it was out. Um, oh, I oh, I was so late ago. to the party, but I watched. I watched like the first season and just like couldn't quite couldn't quite get what was like th- what the end game was so I was like mm. Mm, okay and I I like fell off the train after a while. I was getting that back when Netflix still sent you physical DVDs in the mail. Do you remember yeah. that era? <laughs> I was, wow. <laughs> yeah. I was getting the lost DVDs in the mail so I had to put in effort to get the next one, you know, and other things just like prioritize <laughs> my interest over lost, but I yeah. do have a, I do have a vague memory of it. Yeah, tell, what was the lost fandom like? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> it was uh it was pretty great actually. <laughs> I feel like um I watched it when I was so young, like, I mean, I was in, in high school recording it on, like, a VHS, so, mm. you know, <laughs> it was a while ago, and I was really into the fandom, I wrote a lot of fan fiction about it um, at that time, and, you know, you kind of have this fear with, like, nostalgic things of, like, if I watch that again, am I gonna realize, like, that I don't enjoy it anymore, or there were problematic things in it, or whatever. I've had that same struggle, man. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's like, do I watch this again? Like, could I be putting myself through this, you know? Um, Like, finding out that I liked these things. But I watched it again, and I feel like it really spoke to a lot of interesting themes that I still find interesting, and still stand by like a lot of the writing that was on that show there there of course were some problems but i felt sort of re-watching it i was like i can understand why this kind of shaped the things i'm interested in like the first season that you're kind of talking about um it i can see why you may have lost interest because a lot of people said that about the first season uh, so it's, it's definitely not just you and i think like that first season was ironically my favorite um where they you know the premise is they've crashed on an island uh you know airplane crash and it's about like 30 or something main characters that are that are all there together and the whole first season has like almost no sci-fi elements which come in the rest of the seasons are like heavily sci-fi um and there's no like sort of fantasy elements at all it's just what happens to these 30 people and their interpersonal drama when there's no food or, you know, when, like, they hear something in the woods. 
and it's very like i would say very character driven and uh like the the plot really comes in like in these other seasons but i think what i appreciated the most about that like back in the day was just the the diversity of perspectives that they had um and that this is a type of story that i still love to this day is like when you have characters who are like on some sort of transportation like you have this like ability to have people from all walks of life like it's not like oh here's all these characters that met at college and then you know you're kind of in this bubble of like probably this like liberal college kind of like at least middle class kind of people on transportation you can get anybody who you know who is like taking a plane or taking the bus somewhere or what have you and so like i they really i had not i had not even thought of that as a genre but you're extremely <laughs> correct there's a whole genre of media that takes place on like mass transit of some kind <laughs> if if that is a genre i i want to know the name of it because that would like ease my searches for like things that i like <laughs> like like i don't know transit fiction like <laughs> but it's true like having that kind of literally vehicle um to to have these different types of people who are flying to from australia to la in this case for all sorts of different reasons like that first season was so exploratory in terms of um how different people respond to crisis and it utilized like flashback a lot um and kind of explaining like why these character motivations are the way that they are and so as like a young writer i remember writing like this very long fan fiction um where i kind of introduced my own character um as if you know they were on the flight and i think this is definitely a like a benefit of fan fiction that you're kind of able to use that framework that's already there you don't have to do any work to establish like you know why are they flying to la like you know how does this actually work like when a plane crashes you know like what which people would survive like you don't have to ask any of those questions like lost did that for you you don't have to do any engineering either you don't have to know how the wings work and what would <laughs> right. fall off yeah right like all of that you can sort of let go and then you get to focus on whatever you're there to work on. So like for me it was like characterization. So like seeing how they characterized 30 different people and made them all extremely interesting and extremely different. Um like I I remember as a young writer kind of being like, okay, how do I do that myself? How do I use flashback? Um and like when do I put in a flashback? Like if you look at Lost, they use this sort of technique a lot where um you know you see a character behave on the island in a, a way that maybe you as the viewer are kind of like why did they do that like that was a stupid thing to do and then you get a flashback that sort of explains like well because of their past experiences this is why they did something you know that you as the viewer may not agree with um so yeah it, it definitely taught me a lot as a show i think about um writing yeah um, I have heard people who shall remain nameless posit something <laughs> that I, uh, I, and I don't agree with this, but I have heard multiple people posit that um, fan fiction is actually bad practice because it will develop in you certain tropes that will ruin you as a, as a writer forever. Uh, hmm. what, what's your take? What's your take on that hot take? 
What's your counter take? Mm. Please, please let it be a counter take. I'm sorry, I'm influencing. It is you. no, <laughs> don't worry. It is. Well, okay. I'm curious with that sort of like where you've seen that. Like, what sorts of tropes like are people sort of saying that you'll fall into? So uh, this is related to conversations I've had with people on the internet. So I have not delved deeply into this, but um, I have seen people in uh, certain <laughs> certain fandoms <laughs> claim that it will make you a poor world builder if you're not uh, exploring world building more frequently, and that mimicking character voices is not the same as creating character voices. So if you're mimicking a character that already exists, uh, you're going to just return to that when you are creating original characters, you're just going to mirror characters that already exist. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I um, I definitely disagree with that, especially the last part. I think, I mean, what else is anyone doing but mimicry out here? Like, I don't, I don't think anyone can claim to be doing anything else. I think maybe people draw from different places, like what they're... Um, I don't I don't want to say mimicking because I think a lot of times as an artist in any field like whether it's writing visual art what have you you're always going to be influenced by let's say even like the last five things you read or watched or what have you I think the important thing is if you're making that leap from fan fiction to writing your own stuff and importantly like with the goal of publication because you can write your own stuff and you can mimic and who cares? It's for you, you know? Like, no one's mm. going to see this. That's fine. Um, but if your goal is publication or having other people read your work, I think it's important. I think mimicry is an important way to, to gain skill. I'll, I'll get back to that. But I think that, like, when you are looking at kind of calling out mimicry as something bad, I think any writer is kind of being influenced by looking at, you know, the last book that you read and saying like, wow, I really liked, you know, the way that they structured dialogue in that. I want to read that. And of course, you're not, you're not typing out exactly what the last author you read wrote, um, but you're, you're aware of like how they structured things and you're thinking about that as you're creating your own work. So I don't think that mimicry is bad in, in that sense. Um, but I think, especially if you're trying to gain skill, I think that um, no matter what you're looking at, if it's, a let's say, a TV show like Lost, and you're trying to recreate what a character would say, obviously you're not writing word for word the dialogue of Lost, or this would not be a very successful fan fiction. You're taking what you've seen of that character, and there is an element where you're processing that and putting out your own original dialogue of what that character would say. It is still fan fiction because it's not entirely original, like in terms of world building and all that. But um, one of the exercises that we did in my master's was taking a short story that you really like um, and just sort of like copying that short story word for word in a word document. Um, and then after you've done that, um, giving that some time and space, and then trying to write something of your own. But you you just sort of, maybe a day or two before, you've just written out this entire thing um, in your own Word document. And that, it's like a muscle memory. Like, your fingers are kind of remembering, like, oh, right, they didn't have dialogue that went on for, like, two paragraphs. They actually had their dialogue 
you know, it's like one or two sentences per character, and maybe I should try to structure it more like that. So I think mimicry is something that can be super useful, especially if you're just like getting started in writing and you want to focus on like one specific thing. Like this year I wrote um, a fan fiction. Uh, it was for like a tabletop that like is a complete homebrew of like one of my friends. Oh, I was going to say, <laughs> what tabletop game is it? We can talk about tabletop oh, now. <laughs> no, we can. I mean, it's not a complete homebrew, I guess. It's, uh, have you heard of the game Lacuna? No, I haven't. Oh my gosh. It's, it's so good. It's, um, I guess the rulebook is very, like, bare bones, so that's why I was, like, thinking, like, homebrew, because the, the person who's running it, um, you know, brought so much of themselves into this world, and so much of their, sort of, um, world building was, was present. And so I, I was writing, um, like, a fan fiction of my own character in that tabletop, so... Whether you'd call that fan fiction or not, I don't know. Um, but it was so helpful because I had been trying to work on point of view. And specifically, this is like a problem that I had been running into where I tend to write things that are like, if it's from a character's point of view, I'll sometimes put things, um, especially when I'm describing like um, how someone's feeling, I'll I'll jump out a point of view and like let's say I have my character one that this is from the perspective of him and then I'll say something like um, the woman across from him was feeling uneasy well there's no way that character one knows that she's feeling uneasy he might know that she's fidgeting but he doesn't know like how she actually feels and so I kept doing this and running into this problem and one of my professors um, was sort of you know telling me again and again in workshop gotta work on point of view and I ended up doing that, that fan fiction for Lacuna, and I could take all the stuff that my friend, the GM, had put in there as world building, didn't have to worry about that, didn't have to worry about like creating other interesting characters, because my other friends had already done that, and I could just focus on point of view. And it was like one of the most helpful writing exercises that I feel like I did this whole year, so I think it can be useful. Uh, I minored in English. I didn't do any like oh, creative cool. writing class. Well, that's not true. I did creative writing classes. I didn't have a creative writing focus, but uh, I think that is a very interesting exercise that where, where, what you were describing, where you actually like literally word for word type a short story that already exists just to like get your hands used to doing exactly <laughs> that. Like, Writing does have a shape, even outside of poetry or whatever. The 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 lines, the the way everything is physically arranged is is definitely a part of it, but it's not something I think of very often. So I, when you were describing that, I was just like, wow, that's a really that's a really interesting approach to that concept. Yeah, it's a good one, and I think I was surprised when I was asked to do that because you do think of like mimicry as something bad that you should like mm. shy away from. And so it was nice to have like a professor say like, no, mimic, go forth and mimic and just make sure that, you know, whatever story you end up with after doing that feels different and looks different and you're not like plagiarizing or stealing any lines from them, but kind of looking at like, like you said, the shape of the work and seeing like, if that's something you can sort of recreate. Yeah, the um, the whole idea of plagiarism even is extremely new because, of course, we live in... I'm bringing it back to capitalism. I'm talking about capitalism <laughs> again. 
But like we live in an era of the concept of intellectual property. Uh, and in most of human history, that concept has not existed. And sharing stories and recreating stories and mimicking stories that already existed or creating a spinoff of some kind of a story that already existed was considered just what you did, to my mm. understanding. Even to the extent of retelling the exact same stories, just like you didn't have it written down in front of you. You just heard that story somewhere. You write it down. You, you share it with a new audience. So um, I, I agree with you. And that's part of why I brought that up, that I had seen that criticism leveled against fan fiction, is that I think it's, I think it's silly and limiting to see transforming a work as something inherently negative just because the concept of intellectual property exists now <laughs> yeah and i think there are like there's certainly i'm sure there are, are people who you know people write for all kinds of different reasons and you may not be writing to even improve your writing like it may just be a personal thing of like i'm not trying to improve my skill in this i just like writing that, that's like how i am with visual art where i'm like I'm not trying to get good at this. I just like coloring things sometimes, you know? So yeah, I, think I was that just that's about to say that's okay. I was just about mm. to say that's exactly how some people are with painting. Like some people just like to paint and no one will ever see their paintings and just just as stress relief or as catharsis or whatever. Yeah. But I think I do think that like you you can certainly feel that way about, you know, writing or any hobby, but I do think like plagiarism and things like that are important to consider if your goal is like I want other people to read this or I want to be published somewhere like you definitely have to start asking those like more ethical questions then <laughs> sure yeah um do you have anything that you want to plug as far as like stuff you're working on or uh like also I I've been trying to get into the habit of doing this stuff that you want to recommend so Ooh. either fan fiction that you have read that is good or original fiction that you're into that you think is worth mm. sharing mm. um give me a second to think about that the recommendations part yeah i i can like i said i cut out all the long silences so no pressure <laughs> okay, good, whatsoever good. <laughs> um okay i think um here i have i have some recommendations um okay so in terms of like recommendations i would say um some of the like two books, I guess, that I've read that I think connect to our conversation here. Um, one is, and I, forgive me if the first name is pronounced incorrectly, but um, Taya Obrecht um, wrote this book called Inland um, very recently, like maybe two years ago. And it's a Western um, that I think certainly challenges some of the, the norms. It's a fiction book, um, but it challenges some of those like toxic masculinity norms we were talking about. And the central um, character is a woman. And so it's about kind of like a different like take on a different take than we have seen before on women in the West. Um, and it's definitely, um, I would say, a very like lyrical book. So if you're not interested in like heavy description, like this may not be the book for you, but it is the description is fantastic. Like the amount of place that's present um, in telling retelling the West is just fantastic so i would say that's like that kind of connects back to our red dead conversation in terms of like 
for myself, like what I've been reading that um, has influenced me. Um, there's a recent book called Queenness by um, Garth Greenwell. And if you're uh, like, as we were talking about sort of like these uh, transit stories, or um, in this case, more so like place-based stories, he gets place, goodness, more than anyone I've ever read. And if you are interested in the specific place it's set is Sofia, Bulgaria. If you're interested in Bulgaria, it's just got a fantastic sense of like place and presence. Um, and then in terms of myself, um, I, I'm very excited to say I have an essay that's coming out um, in Guernica magazine. It should be out in the summer, like I believe June. Um, and it's definitely, it's a personal essay, so it is about my life, but it deals with some of the things we were talking about, like writing trans people back into history. And it specifically takes place um, when I did like an archeological dig in Greece and talking about like Ooh. being a queer trans person in this place that's steeped in history um, for queer people. And so, yeah, it has a lot of those themes in it. So that'll be out um, in, in the summer. I'm going to get you to like link me to where that will be so I can put it in the yes. show notes. Oh, that would be so cool. Yeah. yeah. Thank you again for agreeing to be on like very spur of the moment. Like I just <laughs> randomly reached out to you on Facebook, like, hey, will you be on my podcast? I like your hot takes. <laughs> yes. No, this was so great. I was like, like I said, I've never like done something like this before. So I was like, this will be a cool like opportunity. And I feel like from what I've known of you, like on social media, I'm like, Evan seems like such a cool person. Like it would just be nice to like chat about these very important things. So I think like the the podcast that you're doing and specifically the lens on like fan fiction really needs to be there. Like, I think there are a lot of people that do have dismissive views of like what fan fiction can do. And I think it's important to challenge like, you know, that it deserves a place at the literary table. So I, I think what you're doing is great. Oh, thank you. I'm trying yeah. <laughs> to be uh, a good balance of academic and unhinged. Yeah, <laughs> get I like that. Yeah, <laughs> you need both. <laughs> Fan fiction is good, actually, is part of Where They May Radio, a small family of podcasters just doing our best. You can keep up with Fan Fiction Is Good, actually, on Twitter at Fanfic Is Good Pod. And you can reach Evan via email at fanficisgood at gmail.com. For bonus content, including bonus episodes, visit patreon.com slash WTM radio. Where they may radio.